Drug and alcohol interventions. How to help someone with drug addiction and depression. Do you know a loved one who is struggling with addiction? Alcohol and drug addiction are difficult problems to confront, particularly when dealing with a loved one who is suffering. Are you looking for more ways to support them? Then stay tuned. This interview will give you practical tools and strategies to help those struggling with alcohol and drug addiction. Welcome to Happy and Healthy Mind Show. Thank you for joining today. My name is Dr. Rosina, and I am an executive coach, corporate speaker, and integrative psychiatrist. I believe our mind is the software that runs the hardware of our brain and our body. And therefore, we share practical tips for mental fitness so you can perform and live your best life without burnout and unnecessary suffering. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical advice. Today, our guest is Robert or Bobby Newman, as he likes to be called. After going from a strong moral upbringing in Southern Oklahoma to a drug-related downfall that has him facing federal prison, he understands what those who are addicted feel and think. That's what enabled him to cut through the resistance and manipulative tactics of an addicted person and help them choose life and recovery. So thank you, Bobby, for joining today. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Wonderful. And so can you tell me how did this topic become important in your life? Well, I never would have dreamed that I was going to end up doing what I'm doing today. I mean, years ago when I was growing up in Southern Oklahoma, we had a very small town. You know, I started drinking at an early age. And then, you know, that would seem to be, you know, boredom was a big problem that we tried to, uh, you know, solve. And, you know, we played, I played sports in high school and in junior high and high school, loved to play basketball, loved to play football. And we, you know, we worked on the farm for money uh, or doing various things or, you know, in the summertime, but you know, fishing, all the stuff that a you know kid likes to do. But then as I got older and I didn't really have any direction in life, I started, uh, you know, and the high school and the sports, you know, kind of waned away. I did go to college, play sports there a little bit, uh, football, but um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And I had, it had no direction. And so I started experimenting with harder drugs. I started, you know, alcohol and then it was marijuana, then it was stimulants. And, you know, and this continued for the next 20 years. I was 35 years old when I went into rehab. And uh, I was forced into rehab by the, uh, the alternative was to go, like, like, like I said, my, you know, so you said earlier, it was going to prison. And so that's what forced me into rehab. And I, thankfully, uh, my life turned around at that moment. And I went from, you know, I, I did complete a trade school and I did have a job and I was working and I was trying to do things that were improve my life, but I just couldn't get any traction and drugs and alcohol were always involved. So uh, now that I've, got through the other side and I have a knack for helping others. That's kind of where I, how I ended up here and doing what I'm doing. That's wonderful. So tell us a little bit about in terms of how you help people and a typical client, what kind of problems are they going through when they come to see you? Well, very common. It, it seems to be that families are, you know, had an addiction problem in their life for 10, 12, 15 years, a loved one struggling. And there's multiple things that have happened along the way, uh, you know, whether it be uh, loss of job, loss of friends, poor health, hospitalizations, jail time, wrecked cars, stolen things that are stolen, things like that. It's gone on and on and on. And the family will, it seems like it's a natural thing that they just go in and want to start cleaning that up by 
solving the problem. And then they'll come to me at their, at their wit's end when they, sometimes they don't even know about intervention or how they work. And once they learn, they go, oh, shoot, I wish I'd have known this years ago. There's a lot of common myths about intervention that, you know, we overcome and we get the person to see that there's actually a way that this can be put together to where we, we have a really good chance of convincing this person to accept help in a positive manner, but we have to be willing to confront the problem and stop doing the things that we're doing that's not working. So as part of the intervention process, we sort all that out. And it's a very therapeutic thing for the family. And it's also very therapeutic for the person when they go into treatment, because you're going to set things in place. You're going to enlighten the family. You're going to set things in place that will then not only get the person into treatment, um, and then, but also complete the treatment program. And then when they come out of those sites, stay sober. Uh, because if the person goes, you go through all the effort of doing an intervention, getting the person into treatment, and then everybody goes back to doing the same things that they were always doing before, then the likelihood the person's going to go back to doing the same thing they did before it is very high. So it, the whole dynamic has to change. You know, one of the biggest fear a lot of people or families may have is that it may not work. What percent of the time do you see in your work that actually interventions help? I would say 85 to 90 percent of the time. Wow. Yeah. And, and if a person follows the instructions as laid out and is able to, 100 percent of the time they can actually gain control of the addiction problem to some degree. Right now, that doesn't mean the person will enter treatment, but it means that they can at least not have to continue to live with it as much as they are now. Like, uh, you know, I have very rarely, like a very rarely, like I said, 85 to 90% of the time the person will go to treatment. But, you know, there's, there's occasions where people will just up and leave. Like in a family out in California, lived in a very nice home. The guy was uh, mid forties. He was a very capable person, very smart, very, like he was like a, he, he would get modeling gigs, but he was also an, an executive type. And parents had been, you know, living in his parents' home for five years and making their life miserable and nightmare. And, you know, we went and he had a little boy uh, and we went and presented him with this is what we care about you. We love you. We want to help you and with a really good option to go to treatment. And he refused. And he even regardless of what was said by his family, even his son. And now if his son is not enough to motivate him to go to get help to change his life, there's not a whole lot that. We, the only other thing that we have, a tool, is to for this person to be incarcerated, and then they might go to treatment in, in lieu of getting being incarcerated. So he chose to live on the street. Now, that's a very rare occasion. I, I'm saying one out of 100, that might happen. But it does happen. And, but at least the, the mom knows that she's done everything that she can to help him. And her life is now a little bit more at peace because she does have another son that, you know, she can now put her attention, who's doing well, who deservedly deserves the attention that she would be giving. But you know, I don't want people to get the wrong idea because again, 85 to 90% of the time, the person ends up in treatment. Most addicts do not want to be addicts. We just have to find the right way to approach them. Yeah, that's a really hopeful feeling that 85%, so there's an 85% chance that that is success. There's, yeah. There could be success. So that's wonderful. Exactly. That's wonderful. What are some of the, do you have some tips and tools that, families who may be struggling with their loved one's addiction could utilize even before they are used intervention. intervention. Well, if their person is, you know, out breaking the law and they get in trouble, 
You know, it's like I have a 30 year old son. You know, I told him when he was a teenager. So if you go out and have a wreck in your car, I'm not paying. I'm not not paying for fines. I'm not paying for attorneys. I'm not paying for bail bondsmen. I'm not paying for you know things that are you know mistakes that you make that are stupid. You know, I mean purposely. Like when you're if you're out drinking and driving, you get thrown in jail. You're gonna deal with it on your own. I'm not gonna help you. You know, now I'll help you go to get treatment. And you know, if he if he were to have an accident, it was a legitimate accident. You know, of course I would help him, but, uh, you know, I've helped him along the way since then, but, uh, he, he never did have those type of problems, but I, I just won't, I just won't solve those problems for the person, you know, because it, they have to suffer the consequences of their actions. And, and, uh, you know, and the first tendency of the family is, oh, I got to go and get an attorney. I got to go do these things. And, and sometimes they'll, with a teenager, you know, they don't want the, on the record. They want to get it off the record. And, and, and that, I can understand that, but at the same time, if the teenager is not making any fundamental changes in their life, then to, to stop that behavior, then it's really not going to do any good. You're going to, going to solve that problem for them, and then they're going to go out and do it again. And I'm speaking from experience for myself. When my family stopped doing those things for me, I stopped creating the mess, you know, and I stopped, I stopped making the mess. Yeah. So like as a mother, as a parent, as a, as an adult, you want to save the child. You don't want the, you know, especially if it's a teenager, as an adolescent, you want to go and help them. And what I'm hearing is that going and helping them and taking them, uh, getting them out of the trouble is sometimes doing harm than help. Exactly. Yeah. And I would consult somebody. I mean, somebody can always call me if they have questions and I'd be glad to help consult with them for free. It's not a, not a, a cost for that, you know, it, to, what should I do? And, and, uh, you know, I, I always tell people, this is what I, I don't ever tell anybody what I wouldn't do myself. I don't give somebody advice that I wouldn't, this is what I would do if it were me in your situation. Now, I always kind of use the example, like, you know, when you take your child for, let's say, vaccination or injections, and, and the child is like really crying, mm -hmm. you still go get the injection especially if you know that that is what is going to save your child's life. Similarly, if they are getting into the behavior that can really get them into trouble, just pushing them to face some of the pain so that they would prevent a bigger pain. That's right. That, that's right. Exactly. I mean, them, them going through the, the suffering of what they're going through right now is going to be far less than if they get maimed or hurt, kill somebody else or hurt somebody else. Exactly. That's a, that's a great way to put it. So one, one tip for the family is that do not engage in enabling behavior. That's um, right. You know, that's kind of supporting or providing the money for affording these things or kind of getting out of consequences. What that's other, right. uh, what other measures family can take? Well, you know, the thing it is, is you always, you never want to lower your standards to meet theirs. In other words, you know, well, you might have three kids that are doing great and one that's not, and then you, well, he needs a little help. And then the tendency to pay the attention to the one that needs the help is very high and then the ones that are doing well uh, don't get the you know they're, they're kind of left alone well thought is well this one needs help and so that's why all my attention needs to go the truth is is that you need to let the person all of them know you love them hear about all you guys but this is what you can't it, it's not a cookie cutter approach something may be going on with the one that's having trouble that we need to get to the root of and drug addiction is a symptom of a problem that's then trying to be addressed by using drugs the drugs are a solution to that problem and the more the better solutions that they provide whether it be a mental emotional problem or a physical problem pain or suffering 
the value then becomes in for the drugs. The drugs now become valuable. So because that solved that problem. I, I've got a ton of examples of people that have, you know, oh, well, my parent, I was abandoned when I was a kid and my father left me and he didn't have, or my parents left me or I was this or that. or And then meanwhile, they have kids themselves. And so they're, they're in turn, their solution is to go out and then now get on drugs and abandon their own kids. Sometimes we kind of point that out. Well, you don't want your kids to feel the way you do now, do you? Well, no. And I'm like, well, let's talk about that for a second because that's what, that's what they're going to feel like. They're not going to understand this, just like you don't understand what happened to you. They're not going to understand it either. So like it's something, somehow inherently they're going to think it's their fault. You don't want that, do you? No, I, no, I don't. And so we can actually start in and, and have a conversation with the person at that point and, and actually gain some enlightenment and, and not necessarily make it all about drugs and alcohol because there is an underlying thing that is driving this. That is very interesting. So why don't you kind of tell us one particular person that you helped, what kind of you know steps you took that person through how did it start? What steps you take through and how is the success look like? Because a lot of times, you know, people may have misconception of what actually an intervention is. Right. It's like this. I, I have a ton of examples. Just but pick one example so people can really yeah, right. um, understand. Yeah. There's three things that make an intervention successful. One is the inherent desire to change. The person wants to change their life, whether they admit they have a drug or alcohol problem or not. They don't. They're not happy with the condition of their life, and they want to change it. Okay. You can actually work with that, right? Two is the threat of a loss of a loved one. You know, the, the husband's going to the bar every night, and the wife says, "You know, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to pack, pack the kids up or we're out of here." And he doesn't believe it, and then until she does, and then he says, "Well, I don't want to lose my wife and kids, so he's changing." Right? There's that close relationship there. And then there's the other thing, third thing, which is the thing that motivated me was environmental pressure, which is, you know, having to go to jail or the loss of, you know, so I had all three of those things going on in my life. And that's what forced me into, you know, to go to treatment. I'm thankful that it did. I look at an example of a girl that I was out in Tucson, Arizona, and she had left a rehab because she went into rehab program in Tucson. And her mother was lived in California. She was actually overworked. She was a psychologist in the women's prison out there. She had a 24-year-old daughter and addicted to heroin, sent her into rehab. The girl leaves. The cravings are intense, particularly with opiate. The craving, his first few days is very intense because the cravings are so profound. But so she gets there. She's uncomfortable. She leaves. She's walking around the streets of Tucson. We both fly in. She flies from LA. I fly from Kansas City. We land. She, we meet and she's like, well, how are we going to do this? I said, I have no idea. We, we didn't even know where she was at. So, but the, she was in communication with her mother via text, but she wouldn't tell us where she was at. And so we were texting and trying to find her. We were going up and down. We knew she was in a certain area, a very rough area. And I thought I just told her mother, I said, well, just tell her that you're leaving. You're going back to LA and you're going to drop her stuff off at a little, you know, one of those little motels that, you know, very seedy place. And, um, Wait, wait, she immediately says, wait, wait a minute. What are you talking about? You're leaving. The daughter didn't want her to leave, but yet she was playing cat and mouse the whole time. And I said, no, tell her that you're done. You know, I'm done. I'm leaving your stuff here. That's it. You tell me. And then, and then she says, wait a minute. What are you talking about? And I said, I just ask her where she's at. Where, where are you? Well, don't I need to say this? Uh, nope. Just ask her, where are you? That's it. And the girl literally sent her pin of her location. And I said, I'm sending an Uber. Get in it. And that's it. And then so we sent an Uber over there. We had her Ubered over to where our hotel was. And she met and then we did the intervention in the uh in the uh hotel room and then we and the girl willingly was happy. She was mad that we she felt like, Oh, I was ambushed, but I told her, I said, Look, you just came out of the, one of the roughest areas in the country. 
far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's not like you're walking around there like it's a, a walk through the park. It's not like you don't tell me you've been fooled. But the, the, the fundamental thing is that she did not, she was really close to her mother. She didn't want to lose that relationship. And so when the mother finally said, I'm, she was able to take control of the, the by, of that scenario by the, what she was saying and doing. Just literally, t I was texting for her. She didn't still didn't know that. I was texting, and, and that's what I was doing. Was I knew that I had her. Uh, she was hooked, and I was able to reel her in at that point. And I got her in, got her agreement, and her and I made an overnight red-eye trip from Tucson back to the facility she was going to. And we had it was funny because we had experiences along the way on our trip that were funny, and we were both joking about it. So you know, but we we took that scenario of a girl out on the street. The, one of the roughest areas in the country and were able to pull her in and get her agreement to go just through simple communication, what we were saying to her and how we were saying it. And so when there is an intervention, like, you know, is it like people sit down around the table and have a discussion or how does the actual intervention happen? So when she came to the hotel, what happened then? Well, she was, it was just her and her, her mother there because the rest of the family, you know, it was a very immediate thing. But her mother, she walked into the hotel room with her mother, then I walked in behind her. It's very important that you sit down and you're able to tell the person how you feel, that you care about them and you love them and you want to help them. You're not happy. This is making, you know, that you know they're miserable and, and it's making your life miserable too. And it's not a blame game. It's not a point in your finger. It's definitely, we don't want things to get out of hand. But if the person blows up and walks out the door, we're going to prepare ourselves for any possible objection she's, the person's going to have, any reaction the person's going to have. Uh, we're going to go over every possible scenario so we're not caught off guard. And most of the time, it doesn't ever come to consequences. We don't ever have to tell the person, if you don't go, I'm going to, because we properly prepared. We know kind of what the buttons are that's going to help motivate this person to change. Yeah. And so she sat down and we, we the mom read her letter to her. And, you know, it, the purpose of the letter so is. So you met with the mom before. Prepared the mom, mom yes. had mom write a letter so that she can yep. read it. And then yep. you brought in the person and then you were there as a facilitator while mother was able to communicate with her daughter how Perfect. she feels and how daughter's behavior is affecting uh, everybody, including the mother. And she she had prepared the letter so that she can talk about the important things she wants to express. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. I mean, there's actually six stages to the intervention. There's the deciding that you're going to do something regardless of any pushback. There's the planning, there's the preparation and the preparation. You go over the things that I talked about, you know, any reaction, you're going to write the letter. And there's a, a fundamental thing that's important. The letter allows us to control the communication and it helps us put our thoughts on paper. A lot of people don't, and it's the fact that just the fact that you wrote a letter will have an impact on the person, and they're less likely to interrupt you if you write the letter, if you're reading the letter. So, and then, and then you execute, and during the execution stage, we're prepared to do things that along the way as we execute to help motivate the person to make that change. So, and then we also prepare for consequences if the person doesn't go. Then, we, you know, what are we what are we prepared to do as a result? Because we have, there has to be some sort of change for the person who's, you know, started the intervention, the family member, or, you know, the really, you, you know, going to ask somebody to get treatment on, who's on drugs. I know what they're, they're going to say no 100% of the time. So we have to, we had to put this together in a fashion to which they, you know, would help them see that, wait, wait a minute, you know, I, I can change my life here. Because again, most addicts don't want to live the way they're living. They, they actually do want to change. We just have to figure out that way. So 
your your description of the way it goes is definitely correct, but we do spend a lot of hours in preparation before we actually get in front of the person. And so therefore, you know, and everybody is not equipped to do this communication and this intervention, and therefore it's important to have somebody who is trained in this area to help because a lot of times people are kind of like lost. They don't know what to do or how to say, because they have already used all their own resources or the way they think uh, things are going to change. They have already applied those tools. So having to talk to somebody like you can kind of help them also prepare and learn the areas where they may be missing or uh, forgetting or just don't know, just don't know the resources. Yeah, the, the emotional connection is very, you know, handicapped the person, you know, the family, because I have a 30-year-old son and I had an intervention on him uh, 15 years ago to an extent, but I had to send him to someone else to help him because I was too emotionally connected. So to, in order to fully help him the best, I had to, you know, again, we did the intervention. We did it early on. We, you know, there's no, my motto is that it's never too soon for an intervention. It's always too late. The person is on the path to leading a destructive life and making bad decisions. Why do we, how, till those accidents and those overdoses and those things happen, let's stop it before and get them back on the track, which is what I decided to do. And my son was able to go back and get into high school and, you know, enjoy high school and we go to college. And now he lives in Miami, just got married, doing great. But had we waited, probably would have been about, seven, eight, 10 years of misery for everybody, you know? Right. And he, the thing of it is, is um, to the emotional connection is people don't realize that it's hard. You know, I, I, I even me, I knew I wasn't going to be the best per person for my son. You know, there's too much of a, you know, father son relationship. So I, he needs to go somewhere else who can, you know, really help him. And that's what I realized. So that's the other thing. Why sometimes yeah. there's family members that can pull it off, but most of the time not. Yeah. Oh. And sometimes family members are just afraid of like, you know, they're seeing all the signs, but they are afraid of uh, calling it addiction or calling it just kind of calling somebody for help. They feel like, you know, that may somehow make it real or somehow it would taint the person's name or the family's name. And, and so how do you help those people or what would you say to those people? You know, there are are occasions of people that are like, you know, this is since the fact that my son is addicted, you know, it's kind of like, a, you know, this is my, or my family and they're embarrassed. Well, you know, that's not going to solve the problem. I mean, it, it, it's understandable, but at the same time, you know, I mean, it's a problem and it, it's not going to solve itself. It's not going to go away. So it, you know, why, why not just address it and get it over with? The longer it goes on, the more painful it's going to be. Just make a decision and decide and do some work and talk to some people. You know, I always tell everybody if they call me and they don't feel comfortable with me, uh, you know, as far as my services or whom I've, you know, working with, refer them to some other folks that might be able to help them. Yeah. So like sometimes people are afraid of uh, losing the relationship with their child or their loved one, that if they would confront them, the, they're, they're not going to talk to them anymore. How do you address that issue? Well, that's. And that's, again, that's very common that people, if I, I don't want to do that, I mean, well, there's a good chance they're going to get mad. But at the end of the day, if they're drowning, most people are drowning. They're in panic stage. They're they're not, you know, throw them a lifeline. They won't grab it. So sometimes you literally have to go in there and kind of figuratively kind of slap them around a little bit. Not literally, but you could just, hey, grab a hold of this. Get or, You know, you have to just latch onto them and yank them out of the water. And, and get them on dry ground, and then they'll go, oh, wow, you know, thanks for doing that. Because, and they'll appreciate it. And most, I, I don't know of anybody that will 
it's it's drugs if you are going to combat the people that love you the most that you know that are in your corner when something bad happens to you and that's they're your first phone call and you're going to fault them for trying to keep you from making bad more bad decisions then there's that's drugs talking that's drug addiction talk again addicts don't typically don't want to lose that relationship they do deep down care about their family regardless of what they're acting like and doing they do care about their family and then yeah. you know most of the time but uh, so the I mean, part of the brain really wants to change they want to be the best selves they want to maintain that relationship and stuff and the part of the brain that kind of creates the cravings and makes them end up continuing to use until something intervenes and stops that control of the addicted brain on that rational brain exactly yes so that's where we have to basically bypass that addiction and help it's what i call the 800 pound gorilla that that person's got on their back you know i yeah. we got we're wrestling that i don't want to betray him i don't want to we're not betraying him we're doing him a favor we're getting that 800 pound gorilla off his back because that's who's yeah. controlling him right now and most addicts will say i don't want to be controlled you know okay well remember that next time you've got that pipe in your mouth or that that needle in your arm or you know whatever that bible you know <laughs> yeah, who's yeah. controlling who yeah. Well, I just realized that um, you are kind of running out of time. So I would like to share the resources that people could utilize. So if they want to learn more about you or reach you, how can they reach you? They can go to my website at newmaninterventions.com, N-E-W-M-A-N interventions.com, or they can call 866-989-4499. That's wonderful. And then I also see that you have a gift for them. If they'd like to get the free gift, what, what would they get? 25 tips for a successful intervention. Wonderful. And that's exactly what I go through when I go through each family member. It's 20 years of experience. It's actually with my colleagues and I, it's close to 50 years of experience with, with dealing, getting people into treatment, packed into it's, I think it's seven pages. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, so we are going to put put it in the as part of the resources on our website, happyandhealthymind.com. Please go to the site and click the resources so you would be able to get those resources. And if you are in US and you would like us to send you the link via text, please text, text the word joyful to number 38470. And we'd be happy to send you the link to reminders and resources. Before we end, let me just leave you with this message. Every day is a new day. Every day is an opportunity to make new decisions. So what are you going to choose today? Are you going to continue to let the things the way they are and continue to suffer or are you going to take the steps to help yourself and your loved ones to bounce back come out of the, that 800 pound gorilla and live mm -hmm. their best life with health and happiness stay safe and healthy till next time dr rosina and thank you bobby newman for joining us today thank you